Welcome to this podcast from Field Partner International. This is one of a series of interviews posted on our website and YouTube channel, where we will hear from experienced missionaries sharing stories and insights from their journeys. We are an online community and resource for Christian missionaries working across cultures. You can visit our website, fieldpartner.org, which features free video courses, blogs, podcasts, sermons, and more. Subscribe to this channel, our YouTube channel, or Facebook page to stay updated on our latest resources. Hi everyone, this is Christine Patterson, and I'm really glad that you can join me today for this interview with Jeff and Jackie Bishop. Um, they are, it's the first time I've actually met them in person, as it were, although it's um, by Zoom and not um, in the flesh. Um, normally we've been communicating by email. Um, they're in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm in um, Taiwan. They are also, I, know, I have, feel as though I know them because of, um, we have a lot of roots in common, which will no doubt come out in this interview. Um, I was born in Burundi, they worked in Burundi, and um, they're also the parents of Jennifer, who has been a huge help to us. And Jen had a, an interview with me a few months ago. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to this. We have, um, they have a lot of post-field experience and that's of great interest to us because that's one of the main stresses that we want to make on Field Partner for people who come back from the field to see how much they still have to contribute. Anyway, so um, just before we start, I want to say again, um, this is one of a series of interviews that we have done on Field Partner and we'd love you to go and look, us, look at any of those interviews on fieldpartner.org. You can um, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can um, listen to it as a podcast as well. And um, so just please go to Field Partner and have a look. Like us on Facebook and um, just follow all the, the new things that are coming. Right, so with that uh, done, let's start with the interview. And I want to say hi and thank you to um, Jeff and Jackie. Thank you, both of you. For joining me today. Just start, if you wouldn't mind, I've, I've said where you are, so start with by telling us your roots. Where, where did you, how did you, where were you both born and how did you come to faith? Um, and I think you had a bit of background on the field yourself, Jeff, so tell us about that and then how you got interested, um, Jackie, in um, missions. Um, if you could just start there with your roots. Uh, well, I was born in Brisbane, Australia, into a devout Methodist family. Um, they had their association with Methodism went way back. But when I was three and a half years old, my parents volunteered to a Methodist overseas mission post in Samoa, which is in the Pacific, right. Western Samoa. Uh, they went as agricultural missionaries. Dad had been in farming and uh, other practical things. And uh, they went there for four years with my three older siblings, so there's four of us children, went along. And uh, mum, I think my mother found it very hard, particularly with the schooling for us, because there wasn't much in the way of schooling for expats. I did a little bit of schooling there um, in a local uh, mission-run uh, Samoan school, but um, <coughs> we really didn't get much education while we were there. Um, we returned after four years in 1954 back to Queensland and uh, moved around a bit until we settled just north of Brisbane 
and continued in the Methodist Church there, where I went to Sunday school and various youth groups. And at that stage, the Methodist Church was very evangelical, and uh, these Methodist camps, the youth camps, were a great formative part of my life. Um, I found that um, a real challenge there was put forward, and I gave my life to Jesus. And and a bit later, through Billy Graham crusade, I rededicated my life, and I felt a real sense of the love of God for me. And that stuck with me through the rest of my life. I was born in Croydon, near London, uh-huh. and parents weren't regular churchgoers. But when my older sister was five and they decided she needed to go to Sunday school, they sent her to a, a lively Anglican church in the next street. And by the time I was old enough to go to Sunday school, our whole family was involved in that church. And it was there that I heard all the major Bible stories and um, learnt about the love of Jesus, that he died for me, for my sin, and that I could have eternal life. Um, When I was 11, I joined Girl Crusaders with a friend. This was a Bible, interdenominational Bible class. And I began to learn more about what it was to be a disciple of Jesus. And we had a lot of uh, mission input. We'd had some in Sunday school. I remember in primary Sunday school, they had um, mission boxes on the table once a month. And I always put my money in that little African hut box. Uh-huh. Uh, in Crusaders, we supported different missionaries. We prayed for them. And on camps, we always had a missionary on camp for two weeks. And uh, so I had a, a lot of exposure. And then at um, 15, we moved to Kent. And uh, our town was very monocultural, um, uh, except maybe for a few French or Italian students in the summer. But my older sister went to Salisbury Teacher Training College. And in the holidays, she would bring home African students who couldn't go to their home country. And one of those was Enid Sabiti. Her father, Erica, was at the time the Archbishop of Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi. And I always felt a real attraction toward African people and got to really know and um, enjoy those young students coming to stay with us. After that, you went to university. So, Jeff, you did engineering, right? Um, and your first job was in mining in the Northern Territories. Did you have any idea that you would do anything else apart from that at that stage? Well, when I got into the degree in mining, I went in without any clear idea or calling or desire to do mining, but I just it sounded interesting to me. I was interested in geology, and I thought, oh, well, that sounds good. <laughs> I didn't have any clear future prospect of um, I was going to stay in mining all my life or anything like that. Um, but I went to Tennant Creek in Central Australia, which is not far, too far north of Alice Springs, right out in the middle of nowhere. And I worked there for nearly two years, 20 months. And uh, I enjoyed the practical side of it. I loved the 
hands-on uh, rock mining that we did there. But after about 15 months, they started to put me into the office to train me up as a proper mining engineer. And, of course, that, for me, wasn't what I wanted at all. I didn't see myself as a management person at all. I rather wanted the hands-on side of things. And so it wasn't too long after that that I resigned and uh, decided then that I was having saved up quite a bit of money working in Cannon Creek that I'd travel, do the usual Australian thing of travelling around. So I decided I was going to head off and... Uh, I decided because I thought, well, maybe I'm going to be away for quite a while, I'd go and see my parents. And my parents had been living near Brisbane but had moved to New Zealand because my younger brother had um, got an apprenticeship with, a, with relatives in uh, New Zealand. So they'd gone there to support them and they'd sold up in Australia and bought a house in New Zealand. So I went to live with them. Um, now, while I'd been in Tennant Creek, I got pretty dry spiritually. There wasn't a lot of fellowship there, and uh, I didn't nourish myself spiritually. Um, when I went to New Zealand, my parents were involved in a very lively, charismatic church in Wellington. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, I went along, and I was very blessed with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it really changed my motivation didn't change me from wanting to travel, but so I went to UK, but I went with a different motivation. I went mm. wanting to find serve the Lord. And uh, I had a sort of still a vague idea that maybe I would end up in Africa, but mm -hmm. no clear leading on that. So I went and uh, spent a year in, uh, in England. Now, I'll say a bit more about that later. Okay. Um, now, I noticed from the bio that you sent me that there were three strands of connection with members of my family. Now, um, but the first two were with you, I think, um, Jackie. So uh, let's try and I'm trying to get the chronology right. You left school and then you went into teacher training in North London. And you credit my mum with planting a seed that led to a significant change of direction for you. So can you tell us about that? Yes, I, I went to teacher training college and I joined the Christian Union and the first year your mum Elizabeth came as a speaker mm -hmm. and she was in Rwanda. I'm ashamed to say I'd never heard of it and didn't know where it was and um, she just spoke to us all and challenged us w would we be willing to go maybe and teach in Africa mm. and that because of Missions input and my um, heart was open to that possibility. I felt a seed was planted. And I remember the following Sunday going to the church I was attending, standing up to sing and looking at the pew in front of me, and there were a pile of magazines and it said Rwanda Notes, Rwanda CMS Notes. Right. From then on, it seemed to be Rwanda, Rwanda mission came before me a little. And then that seed grew over the next five years because I finished my training, I taught in Kent. And then I went to 
Mount Hermon Missionary Training College in Ealing for a year. And I was assigned to a church where your sister Meg was worshipping and she was a police officer. Right. And, of course, name like Gilbo, you say, oh, Gilbo. And, um, and then the second year we amalgamated with, with uh, two other colleges and went to All Nations in Hertfordshire for our second year of study. And it was during that year that I was accepted as a candidate for Rwanda Mission. Um, after that, I had French immersion for almost nine months. Uh, I had Brussels or where? I, I went to um, Paris for two months to the Alliance Française and then to Switzerland to the Institute Amals, but I was going daily to a language school in Lausanne. Okay. And I had very good French at school for O level, but I really hadn't talked much at all. Mm. And so this was an opportunity for me. And I'd been assigned a school at Kigemi in Rwanda to be a teacher there. But during that time of French in Switzerland, there were a group of us. And um, the civil war in Burundi erupted and we were praying almost daily for Burundi. And I felt one day a real sense in my heart that maybe I would go to Burundi. Oh, wow. And then I had a letter from the mission in London saying, we have a request for a teacher to go to Burundi. Uh, we know you've been assigned to Kigeni, but we're wondering if you would pray about it. And I knew straight away that God had already was directing me and I was able to say, yes, I'm willing to go. Great. So you went to Burundi and to a place called Bohiga, is that right? Yes, indeed. Right. Yeah. Okay, so um, we're going to come to the third connection with my family in a minute. But first of all, Jeff, you, meanwhile, were still on the other side of the world at that point, were you? And you have, hadn't uh, yet come to the UK? Well, I, I went to UK in um, 1972, uh, ended up in Burundi in 1974. I had a year in England where I travelled and then through a friend that I met in Tennant Creek, ended up going to Stanmore Baptist Church, which is a very, was a, quite a big Baptist church in North London. But the big thing was that they were very close connections with Tearfund. Uh -huh. uh, the minister was even um, on the board of Tearfund. And uh, <clears throat> I had started, after my travels, started to think about what next and started to look around to see what would open up. I had tried with SIM, maybe to work in Africa, but they knocked me back because of my charismatic experience. And then I um, found a connection with Tearfund, and they said, yeah, we've got something for you. You can do a, a short-term building project in Burundi, and it's just sitting there waiting for you to get there. And uh, this is, with the, of course, with the Anglican Church in Burundi. And uh, so in preparation, they said, well, quick, learn some French. Fortunately, I had learned some in high school, but not much. And so I got some cassette tapes and studied up as much as I could. And then I spent about two months, I forget exactly how much, at Foxbury, which was a CMS 
residential college uh, house where they assessed me, you might say. They looked at me and decided I wasn't too much of a risk to be sending out to the mission field. <laughs> that was the only more training I had. <laughs> I didn't do any study. Yeah, they, um, they were very keen to get me out there quickly as possible. And uh, so I ended up going in uh, early 74 to Burundi. Um, <laughs> and that's where I met up with your Aunt Rosemary. But she, they, at least they, even though they were in a hurry to get them started, they let me do a three-month Kurundi uh, uh, introduction course with Rosemary. <laughs> and there was a few others of it, including Graham White and Ursula Parry and a couple of others, uh, uh, thereabouts anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, that was a great foundation for me to get me started. So then I ended up at the Higa to do this building project. And uh, behind the hospital building project or beyond the hospital building project, there was a much bigger project funded by German churches to build up the local secondary school. And that involved dormitories and assembly hall and kitchen and a lot of work. And uh, before too long, I was totally involved in doing that. And uh, I had a lot of help in Kirundi with Harold Aidney. He uh, uh, was the senior doctor at the Higa, and so he helped me a lot with uh, inter interpreting and getting me started. <laughs> and uh, after a couple of years, I was, I was on my own, so I was able to talk Kirundi to my workmen. Yeah, I think that's about it. Isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Right, but the, there you met each other, right, in, Buhi in um, Buhiga? <laughs> I mean, were, were you thrown together because you were the only two singles, or how did that all come about? Yeah, um, I didn't um, go looking for romance. I didn't <laughs> go expecting to meet the love of my life or anything like that. And there were other single people on the mission station, um, other single ladies, that is. Um, but uh, after a while, it became clear that uh, Jackie and I had something very much in common, and uh, we started to get interested in each other. And, of course, then um, it was a challenge to have a relationship without having a relationship, if you know what I mean. Um, fortunately, the missionaries were very understanding and we were able to go away to Matana, which is another mission station, where we stayed separately, of course, with um, missionaries there and had a time away together. And uh, that was very good for us. Harold Aidney, the senior doctor, he was a great uh, father figure for me. He advised me that, yes, this is a good idea, go for it. <laughs> I was... <laughs> Yeah. I uh, was encouraged by him, yeah. Right. So how, where did you get married then, actually in Burundi, or did you go, go back to get married? Oh, uh, we, we got married in Burundi uh -huh. in 1970. So <laughs> we're coming up 46 years, yeah. And in fact, we had a civil wedding on 6th of June, which is just two days ago, uh -huh. and in the and that's what's written on our marriage certificate is that date, but 
our actual church wedding, which we had in the Bohiga Church, was on the 9th of August. So uh, we count that as our wedding date. Right, nice. Mm. So where, where did you have the civil wedding? Sorry, I didn't catch that. In Bujumbura, in the capital of Burundi. Oh, okay. We went the uh, you know, the government offices there and signed the papers and did that sort of thing. The reason we had to have it two months before was because um, the man who was going to marry us, we thought, just shortly before our August wedding, he was going overseas and he wasn't coming back until after our church wedding. So we went early and we just, I just asked for time off from school and said because we're foreigners, we had some official things to do. Um, and uh, we had a, a, an African pastor and Pat Brooks, who was one of our missionaries. They came as our witnesses. And we were given a little book with a place for 12, the names of 12 children in it uh, by, the, by the registrar. And um, mm. he said, uh, oh, now he said, you can take me for a drink. And we said, oh, we're actually going off to have an ice cream. And then we went back to Wahiga and lived live there single lives again until we August wedding when I was very blessed because my parents came out from England Lovely. but they were the family on either side who were there mm -hmm. and we just felt to go to England it would have been my wedding if we'd gone to Australia which we wouldn't have done it would yeah. have been Jeff's wedding had all our African and and missionary friends and family there with us and your parents family. my parents yeah. Um, going back when we met, I'd actually had a broken engagement in the past, so I was extremely wary of another relationship, and um, um, so it definitely wasn't love at first time. But um, as I began to relax and get to know Jeff and um, appreciate him, then I think love blossomed. Nice. Um, the tear and CMS were both very encouraging of us. And um, things in our, I think we had similarities in our family background. We had our, our call to Africa and our faith. But the adjustments weren't too significant, really, I mean, amazingly. Mm. And my schoolgirls were very intrigued and interested by it all. Uh, but we had to, you know, be very careful culturally to be. Uh, and I remember if I, if we had a gathering and, Jeff would walk back to my little house. The night guard would come out with his spear and stand behind me and wait to see me go into my house and say goodnight to Jeff. <laughs> so off Jeff would go. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, young people today would think how extraordinary, but we, yes, I think God is very good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Lovely. We were, tell us, uh, tell us uh, about Burundi itself in those days. Um, everyone's heard about the genocide in Rwanda, but you just mentioned the, um, the troubles that started in Burundi just a short while before Rwanda, right? Well, no, yeah, there were a lot of troubles that coming out at various stages. But um, So there'd been a genocide in 1972 before either of you arrived there. So what did you experience in the aftermath? In Rwanda, there, there was a definite move of the Holy Spirit at about that same time. So did that sort of affect Burundi at all or not? Well, when I arrived in 73, um, I think everyone in the school, the community, the church had, had suffered in some way from that genocide. 
and the missionaries shared with me stories of schoolgirls and church members and the things that they've been through. It was all very sad. I remember being outside one day playing volleyball with the girls very happily in a, an army truck went up the road and they just all stopped and stood and looked. And I, I realised that this was a memory from the war. Mm. But we're aware of the underlying tension still from that time and it was a tangible thing. When you left the country, you'd almost feel a weight lifting off you. You had to be careful not to mention Tutsi and Hutu, that's the two tribal groups that crashed, and uh, be careful, you know, what you said uh, in public. But on the whole, it was going, the uh, Christian Christian side of things was going well. They had a fairly good Christian union in the school and it was reasonably strong, but we felt it was very skin deep. A lot of it was like posturing. They were very good at standing up and saying the right words, but you didn't feel it was really gone down into their hearts. Mm. But the spirit came upon them at once, at one stage. I remember it very clearly because I was outside the church, I don't know why, sitting, and the Christian Union was meeting inside the church, and uh, suddenly they were fleeing from the church. They ran out, some of them, not all of them, but some of them did. They had sensed a real presence of the Holy Spirit in the church, and it had scared them so much so that they ran out. Mm. It was quite amazing. But from that, we saw a real change in some of their hearts. We felt a real genuine deep change that meant people were bringing back things they'd stolen, they were actually doing things which showed that they had properly repented, you know. Mm. And that was a great experience. Mm. That's amazing. So um, you have three kids, but only Jen, the middle one, was born in Burundi. Where were the other two born? Well, we had leave every three years with CMS, and so Rebecca was born on our first leave, and then Jen was born in Burundi, and then on our second leave, we had Ian, and um, the Africans were quite excited. They'd say, you came one, you went back two, came back three, went back four, came back one. They thought we were going to go on and on doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't quite work like it. <laughs> right. But, but ultimately, it was the issue of education that caused you to, to leave. So, um, how, I mean, that's always one of the biggest challenges that missionaries have to face. That, and there's no blueprint. It's one thing that seems to be very clear, that everybody has to make their own choice and, and decide differently. So how, why did you make that choice to, to leave at that point? Yeah, well, there were other things happening in the background. The government was starting to clamp down on uh, giving visas to missionaries. They were starting to uh, stop, send, they were sending home quite a few missionaries who they felt weren't doing anything useful for the country. They wanted people who would bring in money, who would do projects that were uh, prestigious and brought in lots of money. And uh, so at that stage, they were uh, sifting through and sending home missionaries, a couple from Rwanda Mission West. 
weren't able to renew their visas and they had to go home. Um, quite a few Americans did. And so my projects at that stage had come to an end and we just felt it was a good time to move on. Right. And so we peaceful about leaving at that stage. Okay. And um, so where did you go then? Did you go to the UK, to Australia? What, what happened next? Well, we really talked about it and jointly decided that Australia was the place to go for our children's sake. And Jackie's parents were very good about that because they knew that all their grandchildren that they had were now moving to Australia. So they were very kind, you might say, in letting us go until we moved to Australia. That was in uh, the end of 1984. Okay, so and where did you settle then? You went straight back to Brisbane or where did you go? We moved to Toowoomba, where we are now, because my mother had ended up moving into Toowoomba. My father had died in 1978 from cancer mm. and uh, the church that they were in had very kindly helped mum find a house in Toowoomba, a nice little house that she could live in. And she'd moved into Toowoomba, so we felt it was a great place to come and be with her at least initially until we settled down. Okay. Um, so clearly both of you, though, had had a real impact in your lives by living in another culture, and, and I understand that you carried on expressing a real heart for the nations. Um, so... Mm -hmm. How, how did you, how, what do you feel the, um, the impact was then of having lived and, and, and been a, lived life in another culture? How did that impact you when it came to seeing people from other cultures in Australia? Well, for me, um, I had been doing some very satisfying projects with the hydro power plant we put in, and that took five years of our time. And... Uh, Coming back to Australia, suddenly I was a very small cog in a big wheel instead of being the other way around. Um, and uh, that took me a while to adjust to, really, quite honestly. It took me a couple of years to really adjust back to just being a normal bloke in a uh, workforce in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, we still had a heart for missions. And we met up with a couple who had been missionaries in the Congo uh, they lived just around the corner from us and we really sort of latched on to them because they had shared experiences that we could share and uh, we found that we were sort of bond with them. They helped us and I suppose we helped them a bit. But, yeah, they, they took us under their wing and uh, got us back on our feet, you might say, in a, in a sense. Yeah. Yes, and they... Um Ken was actually the assistant pastor of the church we went to and there was a good <coughs> emphasis on mission in that church. There was also an international fellowship uh, with mostly uh, students from our local university. We became involved in that and many of them were from Asia and from the Pacific Islands. And um, after a few years of living in Toowoomba, we moved to a bigger house and we started to have a border every year. Um, we had orders from various countries um, over the, the following years, which was great for our children to have that exposure. Mm. And one of them, uh, a um, student from Zimbabwe, 
who'd had a quite a remarkable life of difficulty and had had um, a scholarship to come to Australia, but that had fallen through and she came to live with us and finally she's become part of our family because she has no one left now in Zimbabwe. And um, so I think our experience in Africa helped us to identify with people who'd come to study, people who'd, who'd come as immigrants, and then more laterally, our city uh, started to welcome Sudanese refugees, Congolese refugees, amongst whom there were Barundi from the camps, the same camps as the Congolese. And we met one family where the husband had taught in the Bukika Secondary School, where I had taught, but obviously many years later, they were living in Toowoomba. And um, more recently, we have Syrian, Iraqi and Yazidi refugees, and uh, many of them have suffered terribly. And I think just our experience with the genocide and the suffering um, helps us to understand a little bit of how, how it's been for them. And now they're in Australia. And I think if you've never been anywhere, never lived in another culture or had to use another language, it's easy to think, why don't people just speak English and live like us? Right. So they need lots of care and support and help. And there are great things going on in our city, for, particularly for refugees. So um, job-wise then, were you, 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 you went back into um, engineering work, did you, Jeff? Or um, and you into teaching or what did you do? I started locally in engineering, but it was very much um, more like a labourer in the engineering firm. So it wasn't very highly paid and not very satisfying. So I ended up transitioning sideways into teaching, into secondary teaching. Oh. I did a study, one year postgraduate study, and became a secondary maths and science teacher. And that's what I did from then on up until I retired. Um, and uh, that allowed us to stay in, in Toowoomba, where we still are living. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, Jack, you did teaching too, right? Yeah? I was teaching, yeah, mostly part-time. But um, in 2003, we had long service leave, which is a wonderful um, thing in Australia. After 10 years, you get 10 weeks of paid leave. So we went back to Burundi for seven weeks. and. We wondered if God would open up something for us to be there to work again, but it just did not become apparent that there was, there was anything specific for us. And so we went back home and the following year, an opportunity came for us to go and work in China through the Department of Education in Queensland, we had a partnership with a Chinese company preparing Chinese students to come to university in Australia. And we taught in this program for one year in Nanjing and then a couple of years in Longfong City, which is in Hebei province near, not far from Beijing. Okay. And it was an experience for us. And um, none of the students actually wanted to come to Toowoomba. They thought of it as a sleepy little place. 
although we've got about 130,000 people here. They wanted to go to the big smoke, to the big cities of Brisbane and Melbourne and so on. Right. So we didn't really keep in touch with a lot of them, but we have met Chinese in Timber and Chinese at the local university here. And in our house, we have, um, since we settled in Toowoomba, we've got a fairly big house. And after our children mostly moved out, um, we were able to host boarders to come, who'd come to Toowoomba to study English. And so we met a lot of people from Malaysia, Korea, China, Japan. And uh, we had boarders on and off like that, homestay people who wanted to learn, improve their English. We've had them on and off ever since then, right up until COVID put a stop to everything like that. Right. Short term, maybe two weeks, four weeks, maximum eight weeks, okay. either school or uh, part of their university. So that's been really, really enjoyable. Yeah. Mm. And, and that obviously rubbed off on your kids because Jen also got involved with the international um, side of church and that, things like that. And she obviously loves, has the nations on her heart too. That's lovely. Um, so yeah. what would you say to people who don't feel called to go abroad but still have the nations on their heart? How can they engage like you have with international people at home? And what special skills or mindset is needed for that, would you say? Well, I think... Uh we, for example, got a CELPA qualification, which is a English as a second language qualification mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, uh, and then get into helping migrants learn English. That's what I've been doing. Uh, I've been teaching ESL at a, a local church that holds a Saturday two-hour English course, and uh, we... These people are mainly migrants who've come, refugees. At the moment, they're mainly Azidi from Syria and Iraq. Um, and uh, that's a great point of contact because they desperately want to learn English so they can get work. And uh, they're open to the gospel. They're, of course, they've had a, a Muslim background, most of them, although the Yazidi have a different um, religious background again, um, but it's a great point of contact with them. Mm -hmm. And other things we've done, like I went on a um, school, high school trip to the Solomon Islands as a missions outreach because the school I ended up teaching in was a Christian school and uh, we had interest in overseas and uh, so I helped with that um, trip. We went to the Solomon Islands and travelled around and ministered in a couple of the local churches there. That was a fascinating time. <laughs> it was a great for me because it was like going back to my roots when I was very young and we were in Samoa. Right. It was a bit of a nostalgia for me. <laughs> yeah. Right, but it sounds like a lot of the people that you have met would um, in their home environment would be very hard to reach, but when they have come out of their, you know, for whatever reasons, as, as refugees or just to study, they're much more open, I yes. would say. Is yes. that so? Have you found that to be the case? Yes. Oh, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Mm. 
And um, I think just friendship and hospitality mm. is really important for when they're away from their own countries, especially with students. Yeah. Um, we have um, a group I am part of called Sisters, which is an interchurch friendship group. We meet every month and it's for immigrant um, refugee women. And we do all sorts of activities, including um, little English segments and games and cooking. cooking and eating together. Even we're just starting to eat again with COVID. But um, yes, and that uh, they come and go. So usually we have a lot come when they first arrive. And then many of them will find their own groups and interests. But we have some who Congolese particularly who've been with us for many years and they still love coming. In fact, I met a lady in the supermarket yesterday, a, a lady I know, Josephine, and she introduced me to another Congolese lady who'd never been to Sisters and we were saying we'll invite you next time for our next meeting. Mm. So um, that was lovely. Mm. Um, I don't know whether... I was just going to say through our local church that we're involved in now, I'm the leader of the local missions coordination group and uh, we try to encourage people to be interested in mission. It sometimes feels like an uphill battle. Uh, but we, our church supports um, a missionary overseas and several others who are local. And uh, we uh, pray regularly each Sunday for a missionary. And that's a good thing in our church. And I just keep on trying to raise awareness of missions. Mm. So, um, just one last question. The, at, at Bill Partner, one of our main burdens is um, to inspire people who've been on the field to see what a huge contribution they still have to make. I mean, obviously, I didn't actually ask you about this, but you have the re-entry stress, you know, the difficulty of settling back in. You mentioned difficult, you know, be, becoming a, a small fish in a big pond and, you know, finding your way again when you get back. So I think that's a process that everyone goes through. But then after that, to still realise how much you still have to give in the kind of stuff that you'd, you've been talking about. So, I mean, how, how would you feel you could encourage people who've been on the field to re-engage or keep engaged with um, reaching out to international people or, and seeing how they could even have a part to play in mentoring people who are preparing to go. Um, have you any thoughts about that? That's all true. I think one of the things is when you come back, local Christians, as much as they might want to be friends and don't understand what you've been through. You can't share that. And uh, yet people, we've got a, a doctor family who's just come back from PNG. They had a pretty tough time and they were pretty burnt out. And we felt we could uh, listen and share and empathise with them and help them in that area. Um, they're, they're coming through very well and we feel that they'll be good. But... They're great because they've got a young family. They've got five children with another one on the way. They're great to have ministering in our Sunday school sort of um, uh, 
you know, hear these kids have been overseas and they're just sort of raising a bit of interest and awareness in um, missions overseas, yeah. Mm, great. And last week, last weekend we had a church away and um, Jeff got talking to a young couple who are very interested in mission and uh, we're going to go and see them on Thursday evening and yeah. they want to share what they're hoping to do and so it's just keeping an ear to the ground, I think, yeah. um, and uh, getting involved. I don't know whether I could mention domestic mission or whether that's not really on the agenda. Of course, yeah. One of the amazing opportunities we have in Queensland is that the law allows volunteers from local churches to go into schools and teach the Bible. And um, we're involved in... RI in our local schools <clears throat> and it, I find that the children who know the most about the Bible are the African refugee children, the Filipino children and the Islander children wow. and the Australian children for whom probably that's the only time in their week that they hear anything about the love of God and about God's wonderful rescue plan. Mm. So there are opportunities like that in our increasingly secular society that we can take up and you know go and um, bring good news to those around us. And children are remarkably open, mm. and um, it is it is one of the highlights I think of, mm. of the week really, and just an amazing opportunity that's still open. In some states, that door has been shut completely. Yeah. Mm. Many other places. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so mm. much. It's been wonderful. I mean, I, I think mm. the, the breadth of what you have been through and the way that you've continued to sow into um, international people wherever you've come across them just shows the, the breadth of God's work in our lives. Even when we sort of leave the field, there's still so much more that he has for us. So thank you very much for sharing. And we really appreciate I really appreciate getting to meet you. <laughs> and to have you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Okay. okay right. so, so well yeah. goodbye to you two then. And um, I just want to say goodbye to everyone else. Thank you very much for joining us. And um, do as I said please go over to fieldpartner.org and see what there is on the website. Listen to all these interviews from the YouTube channel or the podcast. And uh, you can also see us, see us on Facebook and like us there. Um, we'd really appreciate that. Okay. Lots of love then and join me next time. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Field Partner. You can watch or listen to more interviews by subscribing to this channel, our YouTube channel, or our Facebook page. For free cross-cultural mission courses, blogs, sermons, and other resources, visit our website, fieldpartner.org.